I want to open up with you uh, Mark's gospel again to chapter 7. I want to read to you a short story. Mark 7 and verse 24. In that section that's titled, The Syrophoenician Woman's Faith. And it says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. What is this little story about? And the answer, I believe, is that it's primarily about faith. Faith is a constant theme, matter of Christ's attention throughout the Gospels, because wherever he goes, he sees people that have some kind of religious uh, experience, some kind of religious action, but it does not mean that they have faith. And faith is the thing which distinguishes one person from another in Christ's eyes. It's a thing which he is most likely to praise in someone when he sees it on display, It's a thing which he often grieves in seeing its absence in people's lives. And so you cannot overstate the importance of faith for Jesus. And it seems to me that this story is primarily about faith. And one of the things that strikes you, of course, is that Jesus seems to be quite unkind to this woman. He comes pretty much close to calling her a dog, doesn't he? Which um, would be an unforgivable thing in our society. death by social media age, wouldn't it? But Jesus does it, and then he watches her very closely. He watches her closely to see how she's going to respond. And this woman gives as good as she gets. She enters into the dialogue, into the banter, into the discussion, and out of it emerges as somebody who is worthy of the praise of Jesus. He praises her for her faith, in the, over in the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew tells the same story, Jesus remarked, he says, O woman, great is your faith. Why does this matter to you? And the answer is partly, of course, just because faith is what pleases God. If you want to live a life that brings honor to God, if you want to live a life that pleases God, if you want to live a spiritual life, then faith is the heart of that life. I think also that in a way we have here a picture of what prayer is, how prayer works. If you're a person who thinks, I want to grow in my ability to engage with God in prayer, not just saying rote prayers or perfunctory prayers, but prayers that are steeped in and come from a place of faith, this is a picture of what that kind of faith looks like. 
But much more than that, I think that this is, in many ways, that the faith that she exhibits is the defining characteristic of the entirety of the Christian life. There's many, many things you can say about faith. But I want to pick up on a few strands or a few characteristics of the faith of this woman and what I think it is that causes Jesus to praise her and what it is that you and I ought to desire in our own lives and want to emulate. You ask yourself, how do you grow in the Christian life? The answer is you grow in faith. Your ability to trust in God and pursue him in the way that he wants to be pursued is the mark of your maturity as a Christian. So let me show you three things which are true of this woman's faith, which I believe Christ greatly admires in her. The first is this, that Jesus loves her determination. He loves her determination. Now, or you could call it also perseverance, that kind of dogged, gritty pursuit of God which she exhibits. Now, I think that this, this grit, this determination is an, a very undervalued spiritual quality in our day and age. It's partly just because it's not something that necessarily comes naturally to any of us. I don't think we're born ready to take hold of things in life, many of us. But also, we live in an age which doesn't breed people who are persevering and, and strong-willed and determined in life. It mainly breeds us to think that the good things in life come to us easily, doesn't it? So that when stuff happens that's difficult, we're not always well-equipped for that. And also, maybe your theology plays in here. If you have a very high view of the sovereignty of God, which I certainly do hold, the danger is that it can also become a reason for passivity in the Christian life rather than active, determined uh, willingness to take hold of things or to pursue God in the way that he wants to be pursued. Now, the question then is, well, why, why is it that God desires within us? And you see, the way this interaction is set up between Jesus and this woman, he gives her the opportunity to demonstrate this. Why is it that God desires us to be people who exhibit determination and perseverance in our faith, in our wanting to take hold of God. And it seems to me that part of the answer to that question is that this kind of persevering faith is at the very heart of what faith is about. Perseverance is just faith stretched out over time, isn't it? Against setbacks, against reasons for discouragement. So that when in the book of Hebrews, there's an amazing chapter which you should read if you haven't already read in Hebrews chapter 11 where he goes through an anal, he, he, he recites stories of faith, men and women through the ages who exhibit the kind of faith which pleases God. It comes to a rousing conclusion at the end of Hebrews 11 and into Hebrews 12 where he begins this in the next chapter. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run within endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, this is what it looks like when you have the kind of faith that pleases God. You're a person who keeps going. Who despite everything will continue with God. Will run after him in prayer. Will trust on him. In many ways, Perseverance is just faith 
put to the test. And you think about how, you know, Abraham is the great model of true faith in the Bible. He is the exemplar of what it means to have the kind of faith which brings honor to God, which pleases God, and which ultimately is the reason why God pronounces him as righteous. But you think about the the life of faith which Abraham models to us. It's a life of dogged, determined desire to believe God despite everything he saw in front of him. God gave him promises that he would be the father not only of his own children, but then of nations that would come out of him. And yet for years he was childless. And he kept plodding on. He kept walking forward in trust and reliance upon God. And everything that he desired in his heart, which God had told him, you'll have a land, out of you will come nations, those nations will change the world. He saw practically none of it come to pass until towards the end of his life, when he does finally have a son. Even then, he doesn't have the land which he's been promised. And God delights in that. He delights in a man who hears what God says and trusts in God's character and keeps going. And this is, I think, the kind of the quality of faith that we're seeing here in this woman in a small way. I'll show you a couple of ways in which I see that in the passage. One is in the fact that she seeks Jesus, even though Jesus is actually hiding. I don't know if you noticed right at the start of the story, it tells us that he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know. Does God hide from us? The answer is yes. The Bible is an account of the ways that God reveals himself, but also conceals himself. And how he then only reveals himself to those who seek after him, who follow the clues, who follow the the breadcrumbs as it were. This woman is just such a person. The faith that pleases God is a faith to seek after him, even when he's hiding. I think about that great definition of faith at the beginning of Hebrews 11, where it says, without faith it is impossible to please him. Now listen carefully. It says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What I'm trying to communicate to you, friends, is that the kind of faith which pleases Christ is a faith which actually goes in pursuit of the knowledge of God. I think that's important for you to bear in mind, especially if you're someone who is maybe would even call yourself a seeker. You don't know God yet. You don't know what it means to be a Christian. You're trying to figure out if this thing is real. One of the things that you'll encounter is moments of excitement and even ecstasy as you discover more and then moments of frustration and setback as you think, I'm not sure if any of this is real or if God is there or if he's answering my prayers or if any of this stuff is true, whether Jesus is real. None of that, by the way, is accidental. It's true that God could just rip open the curtains of heaven and just put himself on display to us. In many ways, that's exactly what God did when Jesus came down to earth. Even then, people did not see But God also conceals himself to a degree. And he invites you to pursue the knowledge of him. It's not just true, by the way, in becoming a Christian. It's true also of the rest of the Christian life. The knowledge of God does not just simply 
come to you like a download from heaven. Like in the Matrix, we just get the Bible plugged into the back of your brain and you shudder for a bit and then suddenly you know God like never before. There are elements in which God reveals himself to you instantly by the power of the Spirit. But there's also a sense in which he calls upon you, invites you even to the deeper things. To knowing his ways, knowing his character. Discovering how to walk through suffering and aware of his presence and his voice. There are days you wake up and you're not sure where God is in your circumstances. Jesus is hiding. She finds him. Another thing about this determined faith you see in her is the way she wrestles, reasons, argues with him for the things that she wants. She asks him once. In fact, she doesn't just ask him. She begs for him to help her daughter. And what does Jesus do? He, he rebuffs her. He pushes her back and says, he gives her this little sort of um, very faintly hidden offensive line where he says, let the little children, meaning the Israelites, be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This woman was a Gentile. She was what the Jews called a dog at the time. She knows what he's saying. He knows what he's saying. He's engaging her into this kind of playful dialogue, but it's loaded, isn't it? It's, it's offensive. And she gives as good as she gets. She meets him on his ground. She says, let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I love the way she engages with Christ on this. Because what she's showing us here is one of the things you see about Great prayers in the Bible. Prayer in the Bible is often a dialogue. It's reasoned. It's presenting a case to God. It's when God seems to have turned his back on you on some issue. It's saying to him, this is why you must hear and answer my prayer. And I think about examples like that of Abraham in Genesis 18 when God is about to destroy the city of Sodom. And how Abraham reasons with God. And he says to him, what if there are 50 righteous people there? And God says, no, I won't destroy it if there's 50. What if there's 45? No, I won't if there's 45. What if there's 40? No, I won't if there's 40. What if there's 30 and 20 and 10? And of course, ultimately, Abraham secures the salvation of his, his relative, his nephew Lot, and his family. And all through this kind of pursuit of God and this reason, this argument with God, that it comes from a place of faith in his heart. It's an extraordinary prayer. You see this happening time and time again. You think about Genesis, uh, Jacob in Genesis 32, who upon his return to his father and his brother Esau, his brother, he has this encounter with God in the form of an angel, the angel of the Lord, and he wrestles with God all night long. In many ways, it's a picture of what prayer can be like, what it's like to engage with God, head to head as it were, and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. We see the same thing happening later in the book of Exodus when the people are basically become idolatrous. And God is saying, that's it. I'm going to write them off. But Moses pleads with God on their behalf and engages with them as an intercessor. And all it just shows us that faith, the kind of faith which God is pleased with is not just a faith which seeks him, but also a faith which meets him on his own ground wrestles with God, 
reasons with God, engages with Him in a way that's determined. And I stress all this because I think that many Christians exhibit a weakness of faith which is willing to give up at the first hurdles. We all feel that temptation, don't we? God may well call upon you to persevere in ways that summon from you the deepest determination, resources, and strength that you never knew you had. As I mentioned, I think some of you are not Christians. And you may have thought, well, if God is there, this whole thing should be just delivered to me fairly easily. And you've met with disappointment so far. I want to encourage you, you know God? God wants to know, are you going to seek after him? I often talk with Christians who experience the kind of, the, the disheartening effects of feeling like God may be distant from them or that their prayers are going unanswered. This woman models to us the fact that Jesus calls upon you to double down, to press in harder. The fact is that nothing in the Christian life comes easily. Yes, we're saved by the grace of God. It's a free gift. But nobody, I've never met a single person who says that prayer is then just an easy thing. Or that holiness is an easy thing. Or that studying God's word so that you grow in the knowledge of the God who made you is an easy thing. Her faith demonstrates this determination. In this life we live by faith and it will require you to exercise it with all of your passion and grit until faith becomes sight. Jesus loves her determination. He also loves her reverence. I think the reverent fear, the fear of God, is part of robust faith in God. And I say that for this reason. Think of this in the negative first. If you do not fear God, it is because you have in some way diminished him in your mind. Maybe in his totality, but more often it seems to me that we diminish some aspect of his nature. In our day and age, it seems that more and more common for Christians to deny the holiness of God, exhibited in anger against sin, in the righteous judgment that he can hold over us. But in, as we take away these parts of God's nature, what we end up with is not God, some lesser figment of our imagination, a dim, diminished version of God. And you think, when God is shrunk down to a size that we can manage, he's no longer worthy of the faith that will call upon you to, that you must exercise and that pleases him. You think of it positively, though. A great and majestic view of God will call out from you a corresponding greatness of faith. 
This is something you see especially in moments of suffering through the Bible. This woman's story is a story of such suffering. But I think about the story, for example, of Joseph. Occupies about ten chapters towards the end of the book of Genesis. It's an extraordinary story of his abandonment and him being sold into slavery by his brothers and being being in, in slavery in Egypt and then in prison in Egypt, but eventually rising up to the highest place of power as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And how he encounters his brothers years later and they don't know it's him. And when they finally realize it's him, they are afraid. What does Joseph say when he reflects back upon the decades of suffering that he's experienced at the hands of these same brothers who abandoned him? Just as Israel abandoned the Lord Jesus Christ, in many ways he's a prefiguring character who displays to us Jesus. But what does Joseph say? Instead of moping about the suffering he's been through, his grand belief in the sovereignty of God over his life is what has pulled him through these years of suffering. And he says, turns to his brothers and says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God used him to save thousands, perhaps millions of people. And he says, God's hand of sovereignty was on my life from the very day I was born. God ordained my suffering that I might be an instrument to be used by him. It seems to me that those who exercise faith in the dark times of life are the people who have the biggest view of who God is. The grandest view of his majesty, of his authority, of his sovereignty, of his greatness, even over the details of your life. I think about Job. The book of Job is a difficult read, not least because it is a long meditation on the profound suffering of a man who suffers unjustly. One of the things his wife says to him at the beginning of the book is, curse God and die. In other words, you've been abandoned by God, so why not just curse his name and have done with it? What does Job say in response to all these things? He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, he articulates the the resounding note of the book is, God is in control of my days from when I'm born to when I die. He gives, he takes away. He is entirely sovereign. And this high view of the majesty and authority of God is what enables him to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I think about that story in the book of Daniel where the three Hebrew men who are are renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought before Nebuchadnezzar because they have not obeyed his dictate that the only prayer and that everyone should pray and worship whenever a sound is sounded and bow down to him. And these three men will not do it. And as a result... They're sentenced to death to be cast into the fiery furnace. And what do they say? They say, 
O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer to you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. He will deliver us out of your hand, they say. But then they say, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They have such a high view of God and of his sovereignty over the details of their lives, and of their calling to be obedient to him, that even in the face of imminent death, their faith enables them to stand firm. This is what you see running through the Gospels. People who have a low view of Jesus are those who scorn him. We saw it earlier in this chapter. How the religious authorities come to him and they're like, why don't your disciples eat with washed hands? What's going on there? They have a low view of Jesus, a low view of his disciples. They look down upon them as though they are on high. But the reverse is also true. The people who have a high view of Jesus, and I'm trying to commend to you the importance of having a high view of God if you would have a strong faith. The people in the Bible who have a high view of Jesus are those whose faith is correspondingly strong. Think about the encounter he has with the centurion in Luke 7. The centurion comes to him, and he had a servant who was sick to the point of death. And the companions that he's with all plead with Jesus and say to Jesus these words. They said in Luke 7, 4, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. In other words, this, this guy here, he's fantastic. Jesus, you owe him one. But the centurion does not think of himself in those terms. He thinks quite differently. He, it says, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. And said, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He has a low view of himself and he elevates Christ far above him. But that also enables him to have this correspondingly high faith or strong faith because he sees Christ in his greatness. And so Jesus honors that faith and heals his servant. This is true all the way through the Gospels. You think even later in that chapter, the sinful woman comes to Jesus when he's at a, religious, a, a dinner at a Pharisee's house and begins weeping and, and, and crying on his feet. The sinful woman just breaking perfume on his feet. And why does she have such faith and belief in the Master? Because she sees him in his greatness. The fear of God, the reverence of God, will elicit from your heart a correspondingly strong faith. This is exactly what we're seeing in this woman. Mark tells us that one commentator describes this as a crescendo of demerit. In other words, he, he, he tells us just how low this woman was when he tells us that she was a Gentile. A woman, first of all, I should say. Missed that one and a Gentile, and a Syrophoenician. In that particular cultural moment, those three things were all demerits. Woman, a Gentile, 
and a Syrophoenician Gentile of all Gentiles. And yet, she exhibits the reverence that Jesus is worthy of. It tells us when he came, she came to him, she fell down at his feet. And later in talking to him, she addresses him as Lord. She says, yes, Lord. I wonder why it is that some of, you, some of us have a low view of God and others a high view. I think it has a lot to do with how we view ourselves. It seems to me that when you're reading the Bible, and certainly I think this is true in experience as well, that the higher view we have of ourselves, the lower view we have of God. That pride will take away the sense of dread. I'm from, my, on my mum's side, um, descended from the Munro clan, from the highlands of Scotland. And the Munro clan has a little motto. I'm not really one given to tattoos, as you can tell, but if I had a tattoo, this is what I would have tattooed on me. And the motto is, Dread God. It's good. <laughs> but when we have a high view of ourselves, it diminishes Certainly in relative terms, our view of who God is. There's no dread. There's no bowing down in in reverent, fear-filled worship. I think when Christians sin, to use an Old Testament expression, when they sin with a high hand, which is to say, knowing that this is wrong, yet you do it anyway and brazenly. It's because we think too much of ourselves and too little of God. But the opposite is true also, and this is what this woman embodies. The lower view we have of ourselves in the understanding. You know, when, when, Jesus, when Jesus calls her a dog, she accepts that in one sense, doesn't she? But it's met with a high view of who Christ is. And from that place comes reverence, comes awe comes submission and surrender. Jesus loves that kind of faith. He's worthy of that reverence from your life. He loves her determination. He loves her reverence. Here's the last thing he loves. I think Jesus loves the humble gratitude which she exhibits. Humble gratitude. You see, there are two opposite ways she could have approached Jesus on this occasion. The one would have been with a sense of entitlement. I think we live in an age of entitlement, don't we? Certainly when you're born and brought up in the Western world, you are trained to believe that the world owes you something. And our society offers you things for free. Education, health care, and the redistribution of wealth. There's nothing in nature which teaches that any of these things are owed to you But we believe it's true, don't we? And of course, because it places us at the center of the world, it's no wonder that we live in such a secularist age. We've crowned the individual as a consumer. And the danger is when that carries over into spiritual life, one of the most frustrating things you see in the lives of Christians who seem to hit the wall spiritually, who walk away from God, is that so often it comes from a sense of entitlement. There's something which God owes me which he is not giving to me. 
I don't deserve this particular suffering. I'm wrestling with this temptation, desire for something I want, and yet God is not meeting those desires in the way I want him to. Christians often walk off in a hump, believing that because God didn't meet their expectations or didn't meet their desires in the way that they wanted him to, therefore they're entitled to walk away from him. Entitlement is the opposite of faith because it's fixated upon what you, you deserve, or what God owes to you. But the woman here adopts the exact opposite posture when she comes to Jesus. Jesus says to her, and the way he dialogues with her when he says, you know, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What he's saying to her in thinly veiled terms is, I owe you nothing. And what I think it is that he admires about this woman is that she accepts that as true. She doesn't come to him on the basis of rights or on the basis of entitlement or in a, in a, in a kind of a self-righteous, angry protest against Christ or against the suffering that she is facing. She rather comes to him on the basis of the terms which he has set out. You owe me nothing. Christ is pleased with that posture because it fits with the nature of how grace works. If we take the analogy that Jesus is using here, the children were Israel. Unfortunately, the children were like spoiled, proverbial spoiled rich kids. They had all the wealth, but they didn't even appreciate what they had. There was religious pride an unwillingness to really listen to God, especially God speaking to them through Jesus, a rebelliousness of spirit, everything that characterizes people who've been given too much without understanding their unworthiness. But this woman comes into the orbit of Christ, willing to accept her status. When she replies, yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And friends, I hate to break it to you, but the same is true for you and I. We're the dogs in the story. Nobody becomes a Christian. Nobody moves forward in the Christian life without this basic understanding that you have no worthiness, no right, no entitlement to the gifts that God gives you. But that it is all a gift of grace. If there's worthiness, if there's a sense of Him owing you something, then grace is neutralized. There's no such thing as grace. But grace is grace because it is in the absence of our deserving, in the absence of our being able to demand or claim anything from God. And we're like this woman. So friend, I want to encourage you. We're going to take communion in just a moment. We're going to eat the bread and drink the wine before we eat the burgers and drink the beer. And uh, as we do this, we are... 
I just wonder what, what is it that God is speaking about to you? What is He speaking to you about your faith? Have you been in a dark place? This woman was in a dark place. Faith is tested ultimately in the dark places of life. Because faith is that ability to trust God against what you see. Or in spite of what you see. This woman was encountering unbelievable suffering in her day-to-day life. Jesus is looking for it when he speaks to her. He's looking at her, saying, does she have it? Does she have faith? And wonderfully, it comes out in these ways I've been describing, this determination, this reverent awe for who Jesus is, and this humility that shows us she gets grace. She understands how grace works. No one else around Jesus seemed to really get this. She gets it. She comes to him on the basis of her unworthiness. And Christ is pleased to lavish upon her everything she needs. Are you in a dark place spiritually or experiencing the frustrations of life? What does faith look like for you in your circumstances? Christ wants to call that out of you today. He wants you to exercise that. As we take the bread and the wine, we're like the dog licking the crumbs off the, ta- off the floor, aren't we, in one sense? And yet in this meal is everything. In this meal is the, the goodness of God poured out upon our lives. No holds barred in the gift of his very son. Let's pray. Father, We want to confess to you that often in life our faith wavers, frequently stumbles, frequently falls flat on its face. Lord, I'm provoked by the example of this woman. And I pray, Lord God, for those who have been seeking after you in some way. Maybe because they don't know you or because there's some stuff going on in life which they just need you to, to bring deliverance, to bring help, to bring peace, to bring a, the absence of fear. I pray, Father, that in these circumstances, in these situations, you would teach us what it means to believe in you, what it means to have faith in you, what it means to pray knowing that you hear us. May our faith be pleasing to you, we pray. We thank you, Jesus, that everything we have is a gift of grace. And the pinnacle of that being the gift of salvation which you purchased for us through your shed blood and your torn body on the tree. We eat, we drink, knowing that we have received what we do not deserve and clinging on to you. We pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.